The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this is Billy Murray, and he is singing 106 years ago. Johnny O'Connor bought an automobile. He took his sweetheart for a ride one Sunday. Johnny was togged up in his best Sunday clothes. She nestled close to his side. Things went just dandy till he got down the road. Then something happened to the old machinery. That engine got his goat, off went his hat and coat. Everything needed repairs. He'd have to get under, get out and get under, to fix his little machine. He was just dying to cuddle his queen, but every minute, when he'd begin it, he'd have to get under, get out and get under, then he'd get back at the wheel. A dozen times they'd start to hug and kiss, and then the darned old engine, it would miss, and then he'd have to get under, get out and get under, and fix up his automobile. I have always loved this song. Those of you who are silent film fans, and I'm sure there's so many of you who are, will recognize that there is a Harold Lloyd short called Get Out and Get Under. And any pianist at the time would have been playing this wonderful little song. And I'm playing it for you for two reasons. First of all, it's 106 years ago. It's at the point where technology is such that that man can sound like, well, and it doesn't sound like he's in the room, but he sounds like he's in the basement and you can understand everything he's saying and he is extremely dead. But then also it's about the English language. That is a very American English language song, Get Out and Get Under. Try to translate that into just about any other language you know and notice that it wouldn't be about get out, get under. That is English. And it gets me thinking about something that a lot of you ask me about, which is the whole idea that languages and the way they're built can affect the way you think. That's often called Worfianism because the idea was mainly made popular by Benjamin Lee Worf, who was a linguist of sorts back in the 30s. And I did a show about it related to that interesting movie Arrival. But the truth is that was a while ago now, and I have no reason to expect that most of you have listened through every single one of my shows. And so I think it's time to revisit Worfianism because a lot of you ask, and I'm skeptical about it. It's not that Worfianism is all wrong, but I think that the way it's often shared with the public creates a misleading sense of the link between language and thought. And so in this show, I want to tell you why using that song as a springboard and then going a little further, we could think about something that really got around about five or six years ago. It's an academic paper that somehow permeated into the general consciousness. I'm not quite sure how, but people ask me about this all over the place all the time. It is the issue of whether or not the structure of Spanish makes people think about their own personal responsibility for things more than the structure of English does. And so, for example, taking it from the song, there's that lyric about something happened to the old machinery. So he's going along and then, you know, the car starts breaking. Something happened to the old machinery. Now, one way that we could say that is that the car broke on him. 
That's colloquial, but that's normal English. But just as often we'd say the car broke down. The car started malfunctioning. Now, as it happens, there are languages where you almost have to say something like the car broke on him, as opposed to the car broke. And so, for example, the study that seems to have imprinted the idea about English and Spanish and responsibility is by Richard Tillman, William Langston, and Max Lowerze. It's about a vase story. And if you tell a story about a vase breaking when two people are interacting in English, then they show that actually a speaker of English is less sensitive to who was responsible for breaking the vase than somebody who heard the story in Spanish. And the reason is because in English, you would say the vase broke and in Spanish, the idiomatic way of putting it in the story is se le quebró el florero. So, se le quebró. Quebró is broke. Never mind se for now. But the le means to him. The vase broke to him. It broke on him. Florero, you might guess because it sounds like it's about flowers. That's the vase. And so, se le quebró el florero. Notice it's not el florero se le quebró. That's something that they tend not to teach you about Spanish. The subject often comes second. But the vase broke on him. In a psychological experiment, you can show that people who speak Spanish and are given a story like that in Spanish are a tiny bit more sensitive to exactly who did what because the language makes you think about it. Now, that experimental result is true. That is something that definitely happens under the artificial conditions of a psychological experiment. But what you're often told is that this means something about culture. That to be a Spanish speaker, and I'm not sure what culture we're referring to because there's, of course, you know, Spain and then all the Latin American countries. But, you know, just for the sake of argument, to be somebody who lives in a Spanish speaking environment is to culturally think about responsibility differently than somebody who lives in an Anglophone environment. The problem with this is that the reason English got the way it is, is not about culture. It's about somebody who screwed English up. And this is what I mean. This se le quebró, se le quebró el florero. Or you could just say se quebró el florero. The vase broke. And what you're saying is the vase, this time we'll talk about the say, the vase broke itself. That's something that you would say in Spanish. Oh, you walk into a room and the window is cracked. Oh, you know what? Se quebró la ventana. The, the, the window broke. It broke itself. That's a European thing. That's something that you find in Germanic languages, in Romance languages, in Slavic languages, that everything is to itself. There's this fetish for specifying things that are done to the self beyond shaving and washing and wiping, etc. And so, for example, in those languages, you don't get angry. You anger yourself. You remember yourself, not meaning that you're thinking about yourself, but when you remember, it's something that you're doing to or within yourself. And so you say that you remember yourself, not to mention all sorts of motion. And so, for example, me voy, I'm leaving, I'm going, I'm going myself, as if you need to specify that it's yourself who you are making go. That's a European thing. And as such, English used to be like that too. In Old English, you weren't afraid, you dreaded yourself, you got annoyed, but you annoyed yourself. Old English, in other words, was a normal European language. Today, English is odd in not having constructions like I remember myself, I anger myself, I go myself. And that's only because that's a frill 
That's something that a language doesn't need. It's just, it's the thing that I often say about cats and languages. And in case you haven't heard it, what it is, is you notice how cats kind of nose their way into everywhere just kind of because, especially when they're kittens, they've got to go in. Even if they're going to get stuck or bitten or squirted upon, they've got to go in there. Languages are like that. They just kind of go into little corners and start exaggerating and specifying things that don't need to be specified. That's what human language does. And that to itself thing is a very European thing, but it's not necessary. Vikings come to England starting in 787 AD. They speak Old Norse. Old Norse is many things. It is not Old English. They learn Old English because the languages weren't that far apart, but they don't learn it anything like perfectly. The hard stuff has to go. And one of them is this business of angering yourself and breaking yourself, etc. And so English got rid of those unnecessary selves, except in little corners. You've always got the little corners. If you put a bunch of of blackberries in a colander, let them sit for the afternoon, turn the colander upside down, dump out the blackberries, give it a good smack. Still, there's that one kind of shitty blackberry that's stuck on the bottom. Languages are full of shitty blackberries. And so we have things like behave yourself. Who else were you going to behave? But we still say you have to behave yourself or I don't wish to perjure myself. Well, you could have just said perjure because what are you going to perjure some other person? Most likely you mean yourself. That is a vestige of this itselfness in Europe. So we don't use self, say, vases breaking themselves upon people, etc., as much as other European languages, not because of something cultural that happened in England where maybe it's something like the British Empire starts stomping all over the world and making people drink tea and, well, they don't want to admit how evil they are and so, you know, responsibility becomes less important in England. It, It wasn't anything like that. It was really just that Vikings came and fucked the language up. And so, You have to be very careful about these sorts of things. Yes, that difference today does mean that in a psychological experiment, you can see that Spanish speakers are thinking a teeny, and it's really a teeny bit, but a teeny bit more about responsibility. But then it isn't anything about, say, England and Spain or Cleveland and the Dominican Republic, because really it was just something that Vikings did wrong. You know what 70s TV did right? Theme songs. And at this point, you know what I'm going to play? Because it deserves being played. The theme song to the old Bob Newhart show. Not Newhart, that was nice, but the Bob Newhart show. The show doesn't really hold up all that well, but goodness, it had a beautiful theme song. It really did kind of summon the loneliness of a man without children in Chicago. And so just listen to this. It was beautifully arranged. Here you go. It's the sort of thing that's wonderful that you ended up not paying attention to because it was the 70s and Nixon was resigning. But here it is. Maybe it wasn't 
something that happened in England that ended up manifesting itself in the language, but maybe, you know, maybe it's holistic. And you can imagine me making my hands go in circles around each other. And notice whenever anybody kind of runs their hands around each other like that, whatever they're saying, you want to nod. It just makes it true. Somebody could be saying something like, the sky is green with pink polka dots. If they did that kind of roll around with their hands, then you would just say, yep, that's definitely true. Well, suppose I say, suppose there was something holistic. And now I'm doing that thing with my hands round and round and round. The Vikings mess up English. And so we're not doing things to ourselves anymore. And so then it means that the language starts shaping our thoughts. And so we start not thinking as much about responsibility because... The Vikings didn't have Rosetta Stone, something like that. But, you know, even that doesn't quite work. And the reason it doesn't actually brings us to something else about that song. And it's the get business. Get out and get under. Try translating that into any other language. It's not going to use get. Get is one of those verbs in English. We don't think about it. But if you notice how get means almost everything, certain verbs get, take, is another one of them. Put. Can you imagine being foreign to this language and coming in and having to learn get? Somebody would say, well, get means to obtain. Yeah, but really we use it in so many other ways, such as get out and get under. You're not obtaining anything except dirt on your clothes. There's a get fetish in English in general. So I get that. That's to understand. Somebody says, I'm going to get you. That is, you overcome someone. I'm going to get him to do that. That's not about obtain. That's a completely different get. Or I get to have Cool Whip instead of actual whipped cream, which I like much better. That's that's a thing that needs to be talked about more. I don't think Cool Whip is actually made out of any identifiable molecule, but I have always liked it better. Why don't they put it in a spray can? I wouldn't mind putting it on someone. You get to do something. Oh, yeah, oh, I'm going to name drop. Nichelle Norris once told me, yes, I met her a few times. She once told me that whenever you're feeling overburdened, remember to say, I get to do something instead of that I have to. So today I have to go do Lexicon Valley. Then I have to watch my daughter's end of school play. It's her, no, no, no. I get to do Lexicon Valley and I get to sit through that goddamn assembly final end of the year play. Can't wait to do it. That's three hours and counting. But in any case, get to. Then you can get fired. You can get hurt. You can get, you know what I'm not going to say. It's better to just not say it. But that's how get works in this language. Whole lot of it. Now, what's interesting about this get is that a lot of those involve things happening to you that you didn't want or that you are not involved with. You get someone to do something, meaning that you didn't do it. A very interesting linguist named Anna Wiersbitska has proposed that that kind of thing, this get fetish, is part of democracy, that it arose with creeping democracy starting in the 1600s with the development of a managerial kind of society and a focus on autonomy. Now, there's a problem here. 
First of all, she's saying that to be an Anglo, as she puts it, is to be thinking about autonomy, to be thinking about being an individual and having individual responsibility. So apparently that's a whole different kind of Anglo culture than the one that we would have to propose based on what the Vikings did to English and how then the language might be shaping our minds. So it's all getting a little incoherent. And then Anna Wiersbitska is some kind of a genius. And she's also a lot of fun. She does not like us Anglos. She's Polish and she thinks of Anglo speakers as these sort of <laughs> prissy, acquisitive people. It's, it's a great ride. But I don't know if the get thing works simply because you have to look at all the other languages in the world, every single one of them, in order to make generalizations like that. So, for example, did you ever hear of Alak or Brow or Zhuang? Me either, really. Zhuang, yeah, but Alak and Brow I only know as factoids to make this point. We're talking about teeny weeny languages in Southeast Asia. By small, I don't mean anything about them as systems, but just that they're spoken by small groups of people. These are very obscure languages. But if you learn anything about them, you find out that they have a get fetish too. So you don't say you laughed until your sides ached. No, I'm not going to play the Felix the Cat song. But you get laughing until your sides ache. Or if you're a good dancer, you get dance. And not that you understand it, but it's more in the sense of obtain. They just use it in that way. If you're a slow walker, you're somebody who gets walking slow. They use it in different ways than we do, but it's all over those languages. Now, here's the thing. These speakers of Alak and Brow and Zhuang and other languages like that are living in places that have just slightly different socio-historical trajectories than merry old England. So this issue of individual autonomy and a managerial society, that's not what's been going on in these languages spoken up in the hills of the countries of Southeast Asia. And yet they have a get fetish. And so might it be that English has a get fetish just by accident, especially when, frankly, Vietnamese and Thai, the big languages of that area, they have it too. Now, whatever we're going to say about whether Vietnamese culture and Thai culture are managerial or autonomous or what have you, they are very different in terms of their use on the page and their standardization, etc., from languages like Alak and Brau and Zhuang. And so really, you never know what the cat's going to do. One day, the cat is going to get squirted by a skunk. One day, the cat's going to get stuck in the toilet. Another day, the cat's going to walk out the front door and wind up in the neighbor. Yeah, you know, that sort of thing you can't know. Languages just kind of percolate along. And as often as not, it doesn't have anything to do with culture. It's just what languages do. You try to link it to culture, and you end up finding that it doesn't make any sense if you look at a bunch of other languages and cultures. So you have to be very careful with this idea that your language shapes your thought to keep this get out and get under business going. Let's say, you know, the car keeps breaking down. You have to crank it and everything's in black and white and that couldn't help. And so you're always in danger of having some kind of accident. Well, let's think about, say, the word accident in, no, it's not like I planned this, in Mandarin. There are things that you learn in languages where they'll have two words or three words for something where we only have one. And you want to think that it has something to do with the way they think and the culture, and that's why you're going to learn the language. So in Mandarin, if you start moving along, you find out that if you want to say accident, and sometimes you do, you have two main choices. One is chu shi, and that's accident, as in, oh God, I had an accident. You're walking along and 
there's a bird up in the sky that's carrying a fish and the bird drops the fish and it falls on your head. Well, that means that, oh God, I, I had a chushu. But accident just in general, you're walking down the street and two trucks run into each other and one of them is carrying a bunch of bicycles and they all fall out. Well, something like that is just an e what? So an e what? I don't know what this Chinese voice is, but it's the best I can do. That's just an accident. So the accident that happens to you is an, oh my God, I wet myself, or oh dear, there's a fish on my head, or whoops, I tripped and fell into a manhole. That's a chu shu. But you're walking along and there's a Mr. Softy truck and it runs into a tree and there are jimmies all over the street. That's an e what? So you think, well, to be Chinese is to have a finer grained sense of accidents than we Anglos, who are too busy walking around not being responsible for things. It's a nice idea. But the problem is for everything like that that you can come up with for a language, there's something else where you have to say that they're not as sensitive as, for example, we are. And in my experience, very few people want to talk about that. So there's this interesting word in Mandarin, zuijin, zuijin. And it means, for one thing, lately. And so, lately, I've been playing Monopoly according to the directions instead of making things up. But then, on the other hand, it also means soon. You think to yourself, well, how do you say soon in Mandarin? It's not something they usually teach in the beginning. And part of the reason is that it's actually kind of confusing. They use the same word for lately and soon. So what it means is close in time, either in the past or in the future. You can wrap your head around how a language might have a word that means that, and it's actually kind of cool. But if we're going to be good Warfians, we have to think that, well, to be Chinese is to have a slightly blunted sense of the difference between the past and the future. So somebody's going to say, well, tomorrow I'm going to buy you some socks yesterday. But you don't get the feeling that that is the way the Chinese think. But really, a lot of these things are just random. So cool can go in many directions. But there are times when you're thinking, well, that's great because they distinguish more. But then I can guarantee you in any language, there's some other area where they distinguish less. And so then you're just sitting there with egg on your face. Now, you know, I'm sounding kind of negative. And I want to be clear that, yes, in psychological experiments, you do see these tiny effects. The problem is whether or not it's about culture. And even though most of this sort of thing, like having the same word for lately and soon versus two words for accident, these things are random. It's just like cats are random. When we're talking about languages having more words for things that matter to the people, that often is true and it can be a lot of fun. So, for example... It used to often be said that the Inuit have 300 different words for snow because they live in the snow. That has been debunked. It was never anything like 300. And if you really want to be a gloomy Gus about it, you can say that the Inuit really only have about four words for snow, which is not much more than we do. There's snow, there's sleep, there's shit, basically. Well, they've got four. I think to the extent that I have a dog in the fight that it's fairer to say they have about 15 it's not 300, about 15, but still 15 isn't dramatic enough to get around as a factoid, so you don't hear about that. But the truth is, there are other people who live in a lot of snow. So, for example, the people who used to be called the Laps, I'll bet that's very impolite to say now, now you call them the Sami. They live in Scandinavia except up at the top 
where it starts being all about reindeer and there still actually is ice. I met a Sami once at an airport. They speak a language that is closely related to Finnish and Estonian. And I looked over at her laptop and she was writing something where I could tell it wasn't Finnish. It wasn't Estonian. I'm familiar with those two just enough to be able to tell, not that I speak Finnish or Estonian. And I thought, well, if it's not Finnish, it's not Estonian, then it must be Sami. So I asked her, are you a Sami? And she said, why? Yes. And she was very happy that anybody would have known. And yes, that is how she talked. So Sami, you know, they do have a lot of words for snow. This doesn't get around because nobody knows what a Sami is. And it's funny, already it's 300. If you go online for this, it's like, whoop. I remember when it first came out, the actual number is about 180. And even that is probably somewhat inflated. It's not 300, although that number is pleasant. But they've got words for, like, you know, if you deal with snow, that it'll snow and it'll sit there all day and then maybe the sun will come out and around like five o'clock it'll get to the point that there's this frozen layer on top where if a little kid tried to walk on it it would crack through to the snow that's underneath that frozen layer and it's kind of shining because it's a little bit melting in the sun well there's no word for that or if there is there's some word that only people in minnesota use and probably most of the people who used it are dead the sami actually have a word for exactly that crust they have a word for it or let's say that it's snowed and the snow is a little powdery and so you go out in it to ski something i'll never do but most people seem to enjoy sliding down hills on slats and so you're going to do that and there's a little bit of wind just a little so it's not a gale it's just a little bit of wind and and kind of a little cloud of snow blows up and it keeps kind of getting on you they have a word for that Whereas I just have to describe all that. They would just say that it's a tlukaduka or something like that. I, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the words and that was just made up. But they do have 180 words for snow. Diana, no, it's not going to be snow from the film White Christmas because I don't like that song. And I prefer its original version where it was supposed to be sung by Ethel Merman in Call Me Madam as free. Instead, I'm going to use a song written by Irving Berlin like snow. And on the subject of Irving Berlin, folks, I am so sorry. About a couple weeks ago, I said that a fine romance was by Irving Berlin. That song is by Jerome Kern. And I know that like I know that the sky is blue. I was tired that day. I'm embarrassed. People are still writing to me about it. I'm sorry. But this is by Irving Berlin. This is from the sadly underattended movie On the Avenue. The song, though, gets around. It's called I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm, sung by Dick Powell in his absolutely perfect 1930s tenor. This is the commercial recording, not from the soundtrack. One of my favorites, While We're on Snow, this is I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm by Jerome Kern. Ha ha ha. I can't remember a worse December Just watch those icicles form What do I care if icicles form? I've got my love to keep me warm Off with my overcoat, off with my glove I need no overcoat, I'm burning with love, my heart's on fire, the flame grows higher, so I will weather the storm, what do I care how much it may storm? 
I've got my love to keep me warm. So, while we're on Chinese, have you heard this? Now, uh, even after all of this granular level of control,、uh, do futureless language speakers seem to save more? Yes. Futureless language speakers, even after this level of control, are 30% more likely to report having saved in any given year. Does this have cumulative effects? Yes. By the time they retire, futureless language speakers holding constant their income are going to retire with 25% more in savings. That is a very clever economist. His name is Keith Chen, and that TED Talk. You do a TED Talk, people watch. So that's gotten around, and often someone like me is asked whether it's true. That the language you speak can make a difference in whether or not you're good at saving money. Now, get this. This is subtle. The idea is that some languages mark the future regularly, and some just kind of leave it to context. Now, you'd think that what this study proved was that if a language marks the future, I will buy you some gloves or something like that. Then that means that you're going to be a good saver because you're thinking about the future. But no, it's the other way. It's that if your language has the future, you are a bad saver. If your language doesn't mark the future regularly, such as Mandarin Chinese, then you're going to be a better saver because you need to think about it more because your language isn't always poking you on the shoulder about it. That's the thesis. So if you have a language that doesn't mark the future overtly, as we say, then you are going to be a good saver. Boy, you want that to be true, especially since TED talks are fun. Keith Chen is a very good presenter. It's just so clever, and like most things that tickle you in exactly that spot, I am skeptical. I should say. And so, for example, the idea in that study is that Russian is a future marking language, but you know it isn't. Really, if you're learning Russian from English, a question that you start to have after a while is, "How do they do the future?" And if you ask how to do the future, often people will kind of look away, like you're asking about a drunken uncle or something. And the truth is, they don't have markers specifically for the future. They certainly can express the future. Now, for those of you who know Russian, I don't mean that voodoo thing. I don't mean how you would say, "I will be building a haystack" or "I will be going." Not that will be going. Just future, something like "I'll buy your Argyle socks tomorrow," or "I'll be the one who tells you that," or "That'll be the day." Just ordinary future. Really, the way Russian does the future is it uses stuff that's really for other things. It's kind of like you're walking along, you've got a shopping bag. And there's this downpour, and you don't have an umbrella, and so you take the bag and you put it over your head. So you're using the shopping bag as an umbrella. That's how Russian marks the future with. Other things, and Oksana. What I mean, by the way, is that they use the perfective markers, but you know, most of the listeners don't want to hear that. It's too technical, and you understand that your language is magnificently difficult. Remember me trying to say pregnant, but that is what I mean. Anyway, that's one of the problems, which is that Russian is not a future marking language, and so the idea that they mark the future. And therefore, they are bad savers. Well, no, because they don't have a future. Or there's a whole Slavic problem. No offense, Slavs, but the languages are are all alike. I mean, to ridiculously overgeneralize. If you know one Slavic language, you know all the others. The others are easy to learn. You know, Russian in some ways is the easy one. But you've got your Czech, you've got your Polish, you've got your Slovak. And if you look at those Slavic languages in the Chen study. 
The truth is there's something very wrong, which is that all these languages basically do things the same way, and that includes the future. But then the Czechs are apparently good savers. The Poles, sorry, are bad savers. And then the Slovaks are in between. Well, if they're all basically the same grammar, and I know that's vastly overstating it, but Slavs, you know what I mean, then shouldn't all the Slavs be together on the chart? Slovenians, the Milanians, they are actually somewhat different than other Slavic languages in that Slovenian does have a future. So our first lady does have actual overt future markers, but then apparently they're pretty good savers, isn't, wouldn't we expect it to be the other way around? And so the whole Chen study, watch the TED talk, enjoy how good he is at it. But frankly, the linguistic data don't quite make that work. Now, I don't want to be so negative. So let me give you a fun one. Gugu yimitir. Just the name of the language right there, Google Yimitir. We are way down. We're in Australia, and this is an Australian Aboriginal language, and they've got something that's really cool. You do not say in front of me. You do not say behind me. You say south of me. So if the mountain is behind you, you might say it's south of me. They always know where they are in terms of direction and things aren't referred to as left, right, in front of, behind. It's always north, south, west, east. You can make them dizzy. I actually read this. You can make them dizzy and they can still do it. They start doing it as kids. They always know north, south, west, east, not behind, not front. Now that is really neat. Now, it isn't. Some of the people who study this have said, well, their language shapes the way they think. I guess, but I think it's also relevant that they live in very flat places. The reason that they do this is because you know it's kind of hard to orient yourself if nothing is tall. As soon as these people move to cities, they stop doing it. Nevertheless, these are people who, dizzy, drunk, in the dark, can tell you, oh, it's east of me and not to the left or the right. That's not how they think about it. On numbers, you know what? Let's listen to a song called If I Had a Million Dollars. This is not the new one that seems to be getting around, what is it, the the bare naked ladies or something. This is something older and even older. Some few of you are thinking of the one from the Me Nobody Knows, not that one. This is from the 30s. This is Marty Malnick and Johnny Mercer, actually. But you're not going to hear the words, which frankly you don't need to hear. This is from a terrible movie. Listen to Peter Minton in modern times, just playing it on the piano. You don't usually hear people playing piano in this style in high fidelity. One of my favorite pianists. Once in 2001, I went to see Peter Minton play. And between his sets, I went over and I talked to him and we were drinking bourbon and smoking. And no, it was not cigars. It was cigarettes and it was inside. Yes, I admit it. He was doing it. So I did it too. We were having old granddad and smoking parliaments and talking about old songs. I did that with Peter Minton and he was playing music like this.
Isn't that pretty? That's just a very beautiful way of playing the piano. One last thing. I'm going to relate it to questions. You guys have sent me so much mail, which I haven't answered because last semester it was extremely busy. And I have just started hacking away at the stack. And Blair Adamash, and I'm probably saying that wrong. Is it Blair Adamake? But I'll bet it isn't. Is it Blair Adamaki? Blair, you were asking why it is that people of Chinese extraction who you work with seem to have trouble with the English plural when they're not native English speakers. And the reason is because you can think of there being two kinds of languages in terms of the plural. We European language speakers think it's perfectly natural to be really anal about marking everything as plural whenever it's plural. So we're going to say something like, Hitting baseballs through windows tends to annoy the grandfathers in most neighborhoods. And we have to specify that this is plural. But really, if you just said hitting baseball through window tends to annoy most grandfather in most neighborhood, that'd be fine. You'd get across the meaning. And in a great many languages in the world, that's pretty much the way it's done. And so in Chinese, if you're talking about a suffix that marks plural, they have this mun thing, but it's mostly used with people and things that are alive. And mostly when it's the rather than a. And otherwise, Chinese leaves plurality to context a lot more than English. And there are other ways of doing it than that mun with the word for all dull, which is used all over the place, but still not anything as anally as English. So Chinese speakers coming to English, if they're looking for an equivalent to the mun, I'm sure to them, it looks like we use our equivalent, the s, much, much too much. And in general, you have to just mark plural more in English. It's that cat. The cat is going into little places it doesn't need to go. Indo-European languages really overdo, tend to overdo the plural. That's why. And there's a Warfian thing here, too. Because suppose we started thinking, well, if you don't mark the plurals much, then maybe you are a little bit less sensitive to plurality. And you start wondering what exactly that would mean. And you realize what a weird way that is to think about humanity and, say, culture and therefore Warfianism, if you think about some other languages. Because really, there are three kinds. There's the Chinese-Japanese kind, where the plural is mainly kept aside, kind of like bourbon and parliaments for special occasions like people and and definiteness. Boy, that was a strained analogy, but let's keep it. Then there are Indo-European languages, but then there are also languages where plurality really pops, as we say these days, because all the plurals are irregular. I cannot believe these languages are actually spoken. A lot of them are spoken in the Sudani kind of area of Africa. So, for example, we often hear very unfortunate things about Darfur. Never hear anything about the language. It's called fur. Well, in fur, imagine you're trying to learn it. It's frighteningly fascinating. The word for thief, kam. Now, thieves is kama. So you're trying to learn this and you figure, okay, uh, is the plural. Okay, fire. Utu. Well, is the plural utua? No, it's utunga. You have to take a little. Okay, so you're thinking, well, all right, so if it ends in a vowel like utu, then you have to stick in a little. So, kam, kama, utu, utunga. Okay, but then river, ro. Okay, what's, what's the plural? Well, it ends in a vowel, so maybe it's going to be ronga. No, it's rota. And if you ask somebody why, well, they just offer you a cigarette. Then the word for leper is kewadungo. Okay. What is the plural? It's kewakwa. 
just basically it just flips the bird at you. I, like the thing that isn't an ear, well, one eye, if you're going to talk about that, is nungi. So what's the plural? The plural is kungi. So you change the first sound. And if you ask somebody why, they step on your toe. Then meet, nino, okay? And then meets, kinonta. And nobody can tell you why. And it gets worse and worse, especially with the really central thing. So we've got tooth teeth and we think, ha ha, English is complicated. Child, que. Children, dogala. It's just basically F you again and again and again. Now, do people who speak a language like fur have more of a sense of plurality than we do? Their language certainly makes you think about plurality quite a bit because you've got these double words for pretty much anything. You end up realizing that so many of these things, they're fascinating, but it's chance. It's not anything about the people in particular. Let's bring up Peter Mitten back up under. I really love this song and I love the way he plays. And about letters. Well, for one thing, that romance show got a lot of interesting mail, including that somebody wrote me a message in Piedmontese. This is one of the very northern Italian dialects that really might as well be French. Wrote it in Piedmontese. And it's funny, there's a kind of a a pan-romance where you can kind of get through any romance except, frankly, Romanian, just because all of them are kind of alike. So I picked my way through this Piedmontese, and one thing that the person was very politely saying was that I mispronounced the word for key. And I don't feel bad because nobody knows Piedmontese outside of the area, but I said that the word for key was chav. But no, that V is pronounced as a W. I should have said chal. So... Piedmontese. It was interesting seeing that the Piedmontese look kind of like this proto-romance <laughs> that we were talking about, except it was a real language. Also, way, way back in about 1917, I did a show about Hamilton, but all the mail was about Lucille Ball and how she says, hey. Well, the transient show, I'm talking about transient and transient, all the mail for that one, except like one, has been about the menu of that restaurant <laughs> in Palo Alto. And so I have gone back to it. And for one thing, there are French fries on the menu. I had missed that. French fried potatoes. So they did eat French fries. And also, snails and butterhorns. Thank you, everybody. That referred to pastries. Nobody was saying croissant yet. So snails and butterhorns, people used English words for these sorts of things. Because I really had wondered. And you know something else about that menu? There's no soda. And this time I really looked. No soda. You do not get a Coke, a cola. That is not offered. You get Ovaltine or Postum. My mother used to make me post them. It was oddly unsatisfying, kind of like a parliament. But that is something that you could have. So the menu, thank you, folks. It really was interesting. Go to the Hotel Cardinal, Cardinal Hotel, and you can see it up there. It was absolutely fascinating. By the way, folks, this week on our Slate Plus segment, I'll be answering a couple of the questions that I've gotten. And I'm not going to specify whose, but if you want to know about why sugar is pronounced the way it is, if you want to know why in Irish English there's kind of a sh sound when words end with a T, if you want to know these things, then you've got to sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year, and it helps support not only this little show, but all the other ones done at Slate. 
late. You can sign up for it now and you don't have to listen to me or anybody else doing any commercials. And you get these little extra bits. And notice I've been doing this every show now. The only way to hear the bits is to sign up for Slate Plus today. Let's go out on just hearing how Get Out and Get Under ends. I do love this little 106-year-old song. It's very cute. It's like he's in the basement. So there he is. That is the wonderful Billy Murray. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. By the way, if you're into the silence, you might find that Charlie Chaplin isn't your favorite. There were others. And if you ask me, even better than Chaplin, even better than Buster Keaton, is Harold Lloyd. Get out and get under. Find it online. Watch him futzing around with a car. Then, of course, watch Safety Last. Harold Lloyd, my favorite silent comedian. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter. It seems that once she sat down on his knee and then he lost control, ran right up a tree and then he had to get under, get out and get under, and picked up his automobile. 